Hello and welcome to Contemplations. And today we're talking about a very important topic, and that is how politicians try and manipulate you. And I am joined by Connor. Hello. Who uh, is also our resident manipulation expert, as well as expert in Westminster. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm, as, I'm... In, as in, me and you have covered um, manipulative tactics used by psychopaths before. I, Good <laughs> I so. wasn't alluding to anything else, don't worry. Yeah, yeah. All those comparisons to Ted Bundy are finally <laughs> catching up with me. No, I'm, I'm, I'm our denizen frequenter of the Westminster bubble. Mm -hmm. And I must say, I was saying this to you off air, my framework has always been... I'm not very good with sarcasm with people in, in independently. I've always fallen afoul of taking people at face value, being honest a bit too often. But the moment someone is in a position of authority or perceived authority over me, I disbelieve everything they say. This might be a holdover from the fact that most of my teachers as a kid were either callous or incompetent, but it's given me a sort of healthy heuristic with which to approach anything someone in government decides mm -hmm. to tell me to think. I mean, it's never a bad thing to be sceptical of people in power. I'm certainly not someone who's going to advocate believing them at face value. That's for damn sure. But um, I think it's interesting to discuss it in terms of manipulation, because of course, manipulation is a psychological dimension, isn't it? It's a, something that can be defined in the realm of psychology and therefore has a whole host of behavioral characteristics and uh, sort of dispositional typologies around it. And um, I'm going to talk about manipulation particularly with a sort of frame of mind of the overlap between psychology and politics, because I think there are a great many similarities, you know. It seems to be a concept that stays true in the psychological and political world more generally, I think. And um, it is worth bearing in mind as well that politicians are a very select group of people that embody very atypical traits of the general population. And um, that's just because of the nature of what they do. There's a sort of selection mechanism whereby these sorts of people rise to the top because the the process of getting there weeds out people who don't have these traits, right? It's a form of like uh, unnatural selection, if you will. Um, but basically, they have to sell their souls to raise money for the party. That's a sort of given of modern politics, certainly in Western democracies, things like that, where funding is everything. You know, the, the politicians who can raise the most money almost always get elected. And that's unfortunately just how it goes. But this makes them beholden to the wishes of lobbyists. I think people are aware of this, more or less. Both sides of the political spectrum talk about this quite often. They're also the constant focus of the media, which leads them to do and say things that they don't believe. And then uh, many people will also be working to ruin their lives, as is more often the case in the modern day. And therefore, they've got to be willing to take huge risks. And the kind of person that is willing to put up with this um, has to really value power, don't they? Because most of these things are deal breakers. Like for me, these things are deal breakers for going into politics. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm content getting as close as commentary. And even then sometimes I'm just like, oh, you know, I want to go and have a quiet life. But I, I tell myself, no, you know, that'd be giving up. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but I think that most people don't want to be politicians, and that tells us something about the people who do want to be politicians. And this isn't um, me having a go at Bo um, for running for office, by the way. There are some exemptions. Like, I've met a handful of very sincere MPs who will say exactly what they think, both on and off camera. I, I keep referencing Miriam Cates, for example. But I have also encountered lots of people who work in the space 
who are the exact kind of self-serving dark triad tripe types that they are full would, of tripe though quite that are drawn to the halls of power because fame accolades uh, a general ability to have superiority over other people and one factor that cannot be underplayed here that lots of people are uncomfortable talking about though it does come up in the headlines a lot is lots of them trade sexual favors they have absolutely no mores about doing that this is why again another taboo there's a large overrepresentation of gay men in politics because often they do sleep around this is why the tory party has run into in the last decade or so in government instances like the chris pincher affair or crispin blunt being kicked out for groping allegations or andrew rosendale who just had his allegations rescinded but was under investigation for rape for a very long time or uh, i believe it's neil parrish who was the mp that was looking at pornography in the commons or peter bone who decided to expose himself to male staffers and cheat on his wife and then his wife was running as the candidate in the Wellingborough by-election these these stories just go on and on and on at a level that is seen um much higher than the general population so mm -hmm. yeah and i I used to think that part of it might have been the fact that there's more scrutiny on an, an elected official and that this might have been representative of the world as a whole. But, you know, we don't hear about it when it's, I don't know, green grocers. I don't know why that came to mind. Well, these people have <laughs> the most ability to wield power on behalf of someone else's influence. And so if you can compromise those people with blackmail material, mm -hmm. then it makes it an ideal mechanism with which to capture politicians. So I think actually you have two classes here. You have the dark triad types who are very intelligent, who can pull the strings of their useful idiots below them. And whether or not those useful idiots are just power-seeking and a bit dim, so they'll mouth whatever platitudes are fed to them, or are sordid personalities who can be easily compromised in sexual scenarios and therefore be made to vote along a party line or on behalf of a lobbyist, that's not really a distinction it's an interesting distinction to make but it's in practice the distinction isn't even there because they will just serve whoever has gotten them into the compromise situation or has fed them the easiest line to repeat to a meet to the media when they're trotted out on their rounds as the cabinet minister for all the news shows that morning no no absolutely and uh, of course i'm i'm making a generalization about some politicians perhaps not all you know there are politicians that um are clear sort of examples of being uh, atypical of this rule I'm describing, but it's worthwhile to consider that this is a sort of typology of the politician, if you will, um, to use the language of the 19th century. Um. <laughs> Naive Bukele doesn't fall into this category, but someone like Andrew Cuomo most definitely does. Yeah, but it's not sexual assault because he's Italian. <laughs> to be fair, that did make me laugh when I read it, even though it was kind of like... Well, you're not even saying, you know, no. You're just like, I'm Italian. <laughs> Forget about <laughs> like, it. <laughs> like water off a duck's back, isn't it? Um, but yes, interest in politics more generally, both in terms of discussing politics, um, voting, um, running for political office. All of these metrics seem to align with dark triad traits, which is slightly worrying as someone who works in the political commentary sphere. Um, I've met a lot of non-politicians that also fit that category. Media is almost exactly the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, can't name names for legal reasons, but there are people who have committed actual crimes who have gone on television talking about politics. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm not surprised. But um, yeah, I think that you can also, there's an element of 
you know, sort of being like Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, that it's a massive burden to bear, but you recognise if, if you don't do it, then, you know, the fate of things might fall in the balance. And uh, that's, I think, quite a noble impulse. And, you know, I'm not patting myself on the back there. But, but we don't trust anyone else to do this job because everyone else is pretty much incompetent. Like if a TV spot doesn't go to me, there's a very few number of people that I could name that would do well in my stead. Otherwise, the narrative keeps being reinforced. So, yes, I would quite like to go back to being a builder and digging gardens for a living and coming home to a nice home-cooked meal. But I don't trust anyone else not to screw the country up. Same with Miriam. The only reason she stopped being a, a high, uh, secondary school, high school for Americans, biology teacher and a mum was that she just went, right, you, you keep screwing up my kids' life. So as long as I can be an MP until the, the party screw it up and make me lose my seat, I'll do the most I can in office before being turfed mm -hmm. out. No, no, it's very true. I mean, uh, if I weren't doing something like this, I'd either be in academia as a psychologist or um, what my sort of heart tells me I want to do and, you know, digging... Um, I nearly said trenches, but you know, I'm in, on like a farm. Right? Well, if Tobias Elwood's had his way, I mean, we'll both be doing that in Ukraine sometimes. <laughs> oh, blimey. God forbid. But on the topic of Tobias Elwood, let's talk about the Dark Triad, shall we? Um, so the Dark Triad are three different traits that are um, associated with psychopathy. And I'm going to be using these um, to sort of analyse the different factors of manipulation. But in most cases, I think that a combination of all three and a particular focus on one of them um, tends to be the case for each manipulative tactic. It's not necessarily a neat category where you can say, this is you know, narcissistic, this is Machiavellian, this is psychopathic. And uh, I'm going to read the uh, definitions from a website called IDR Labs, which is actually where you can go and take one of those tests. I did take one and I'll, I'll read out my results, but I'm... Now, I'm not going to show them on screen to you, Connor, because you've seen them before. Um, so the first one is narcissism, which um, it reads, is an egotistical interest in or admiration of oneself. I mean, who'd have thought? Uh, narcissists tend to be excessively preoccupied with themselves and motivated by getting admiration from others and maintaining a grandiose self-image. Because narcissists are so preoccupied with getting others to buy into their self-image, they may initially seem charming, but most narcissists have trouble developing real friendships on account of their difficulty with empathy and their lack of interest in others. And um, spoiler alert, this is the trait I actually scored the lowest on by far. That doesn't um, surprise me because you are very considerate. I mean, I have met people that I would classify as sincere narcissists. And the way I can describe it is that all of their personal relationships only exist insofar as they are conditional on ceding to them personal advancements. Mm -hmm. So whether or not that's validation, which they can obviously crowdsource through social media or in the political arena, if that, that they are influential and they can provide them a job opportunity or media airtime or uh, funding for their campaign, they will shake hands and slap backs and be very forthcoming with their enthusiasm so long as you're advantaging them. But the moment that you are seen as some kind of detraction from their energy or their self-image or someone comes along with a better opportunity, there's zero loyalty there. And mm -hmm. that's very common. That's that's the way I kind of characterise it in my own mind and the, the psychological literature as well, is that the world is a tool for self-servingness. I don't know if that's a proper word, but they use the world to serve their own interests is a much better way of putting it, I think. It's and, very solipsistic. You yeah. almost act as if not only you are the only person that exists, but therefore you are the only person that it is important that all things serve the interests of. 
Absolutely. And and you're right to uh, frame it in the way you did, I think. And I used to refer to these people when I was at university as people who are pathologically normal. Like most people just presumed they were sort of normal people because, you know, when you have the interactions in a sort of university environment, you're not really having really long form conversations. You kind of run into people. They might be in your class. They might seem relatively well adjusted, you know, at least they're not smelly and weird. And so people like them. But I think because I had a particular eye for it, I could kind of figure out, hang on a minute, this person, you know, there's something off about them. It's unnerving how interested they are in you and how happy they are just to make small talk. Yeah. There's yeah. a, a certain certain element of insincerity about uh, things. I've dated girls like that, yeah. Um, it's just quite strange, I think, and you can tell that something off. Trust your instincts. I'm going to turn to Obi-Wan here um, in the original Star Wars films, you know, that you can read vibes pretty well, most people, and that your vibes will tell you if there's something off with someone. And I think that with narcissism, that's the way you do it in a sense. Of course, some people are not very subtle with it either and are just openly self-aggrandizing. And sometimes that can be funny. Like sometimes I like to do it for humor's sake when it's, you know, the purpose is that I'm making a joke at my own expense rather than anything else. There is a TV presenter who genuinely not have a conversation with you unless the entire topic is about him. <laughs> I know who you mean. Not going to say that. Moving on. <laughs> I value not being sued. Um, the next one is Machiavellianism. And this one kind of does Machiavelli dirty because I think Machiavelli as a thinker was not nearly as sort of dark and psychopathic. He was just kind of a political realist, I suppose. He was also very patriotic. Yeah. And, and so I feel like um, the psychological term is a little bit insulting to Machiavelli. But at the same time, it is capturing a, a very real phenomenon. And I think it's just unfortunate that his name got attached. But um, it's characterized by a duplicitous interpersonal style, a cynical disregard for morality, and a focus on self-interest and personal gain. People who score high on Machiavellianism tend to be unemotional and take an instrumental view of others. They are therefore able to detach themselves from conventional morality and manipulate others. Highly Machiavellian individuals can be very patient with their deceptions due to their calculating nature. And... Um, Yes, this is one of the ones where um, I think it's quite insidious now. You know, narcissism is quite often a product of insecurity. You know, someone wants to feel liked perhaps because they didn't have the best relationship with their parents. That's my sort of armchair psychologizing. Good thing I'm a psychologist. Um, but with Machiavellianism, it speaks of uh, a proper darkness to my mind. You know, the narcissism aspect often co-occurs because that sort of... Uh, paves the way for the willingness to do Machiavellian things to other people. It's a prerequisite entitlement, and then Machiavellianism is the instrument of you getting what you want. A, a perfect mm -hmm. example of this is that Ofcom is kind of the enabling condition for token leftists to get a disproportionate amount of airtime on dissident stations or formerly dissident stations like GB News and Talk TV. So if you are a right-wing commentator, and, and I mean right-wing as in reactionary traditionalist, properly socially conservative, you will be gatekept out. No. You'll be get <laughs> your left wing. You'll be gatekept out. You're welcome. You could be gatekept out by a lot of fresh out of university producers who are doing underhanded tactics. So I have been blacklisted from a network before. It got lifted, but it was by a rogue producer. So if you make it past that and you have some good people on the inside who quite like what you say, or a regular host which books you, fantastic. You're then competing 
unless you have a strong relationship with that person and get a regular slot, with a large cohort of other people that Ofcom could brand right-wing and therefore biased. Whereas there are a slim cohort of left-wingers who are not true believers, but rather cynics, who will use the station and the smaller pool of competition to get regular gigs as the Ofcom mandated stooge for the other side. And they don't even need to be particularly articulate or intelligent or well-informed. They can say complete nonsense and never be held to account on it. But by the virtue of needing to fill that slot, they will be drafted in and get paid the exact same or even charge higher appearance fees because their time and presence is so scarce. And so those people are very savvy political actors who are using discourse for purely personal gain. Mm -hmm. And of course, these appearances often pay quite well, don't they, as well? So they're, they're not too bad. You know, the, these left-wingers who do the, the circuit and things like that, as well as, you know, political speaking fees, moving it back to sort of parliamentary politics rather than the commentary sphere, you know, they can charge thousands and thousands of pounds for what amounts to maybe sometimes a 10-minute speech, sometimes an hour at most. Well, look at the amount of speaking fees that Hillary Clinton got after the 2016 campaign. I mean, a lot of the time as well, there are NGOs that set up themselves as tax-free slush funds to support the candidates that they like, or just act as grease in the wheels for the grievance industrial complex. So they can manufacture these narratives from vocal minorities, which amount to just give me stuff. And I don't know if you have this paper here, but are we going to speak about the signaling virtuous victimhood paper? By any chance? I bring it up all the time and I've decided not to do it this time. Okay, well, I'll do it for you. Okay. The, the, the basic summary is that if you have a civilization which is compassionate towards weakness and treats it as if it is not the fault of the person requiring assistance, then dark triad personality trait types can exploit those avenues by feigning victimhood and use it to convince compassionate people to redistribute resources their way. And this explains the entire race, gender, sexuality, grievance-based NGO industrial complex. Yep. All of the calls for reparations and things like that, it's, it's just extracting resources from white people and giving it to black people. That's all it is. And they're well aware that that's what it is. And that's why they're saying it, is the that they want to take money from did, people. Did you see that clip recently on GB News Breakfast with Anne Diamond and Stephen Dixon with the critical race theory activist who was sitting there smiling the entire time, interrupting the other gentleman who was a white farmer who was saying the countryside isn't racist, and then got up and stormed off? No, I didn't see that. Okay, I'll send it to you after the show and I'll send it to the editor. It's a classic case of main character syndrome. She's sitting there grinning, nodding, interrupting the other guy. He can't actually get a word out. They had to shut down the debate. And this person is an anti-racism activist. Essentially, weaponizing white guilt against otherwise woolly, liberal, and compassionate people to extract resources from them. Mm -hmm. And sure, it's useful to have that clip, but also Ofcom mandates that all the people like her, and she won't be invited back on again, I have word on, but other people like her are invited on and are paid to do the same spiel, just for unbias. But it's not on any other station. It's only on the right-wing stations. Bit of a tangent, but I've just had this thought and it's interesting. Is it, it, it this is quite a short-lived tactic because you know, a lot of people, you know, in the workforce now, you know, in their 20s and their 30s, they don't have nearly as much money to be extracted in the first place. And so you would presume that these people would be more guarded when the time comes for these demands than perhaps people who have more to spare. Uh, these, would it potentially be a case, I'm not exactly optimistic about this, but could it be that these sorts of things will not be as effective in the future because people are more careful about their resources because they have fewer? So a couple of things on that. First thing is I don't think these people are 
long-term planners, I think. Of course not, no. I, I, I would hazard a guess. It's that a dark, fast life strategy. Yeah, the dark trade personality types are far more expedient in their judgment. Also, the state currently acts as a redistributive patronage scheme. We genuinely only exist to give money to foreigners. Like that—that's how you can understand the, the the state working at the moment. Even if it seems to do everything the na- native population don't want, it's almost like R- conquest's third law, where he says to understand how a bureaucratic system operates, assume it is controlled by a cabal of its enemies, and suddenly it all makes sense. And then the third thing is, I think. And they keep trying to push this with pilot schemes. I think this is sort of economic stopgap until a sort of universal basic income scenario where they can control who has what and where with a digital currency. So actually, the money supply and stable economics is not even concerned to the state. It's just, are their favourite people saying the things they like getting subsidised? And are the dissidents having their livelihoods taken from them? Yeah, it's uh, sort of political factionalism at, at the end of the day, isn't it? So, on the topic of political factionism, psychopathy is identified by the telltale signs of shallow emotional responses. The underdeveloped affect, meaning emotion, of psychopaths endows them with high stress tolerance, low empathy, and little guilt, and prompts them to seek out extremely stimulating activities, sex violence, drugs, or financial risk, resulting in impulsivity and a disposition towards interpersonal conflict. Personality traits associated with um, psychopathy include a lack of empathy or remorse, antisocial behaviour and volatility. And um, it's also worth mentioning as well that these behaviours can be both overt, meaning out in the open, and covert, which of course, a bit more intuitive, meaning, you know, behind the scenes, sneaky. I'd like to use a couple of examples here Mm -hmm. because I think the artificial affect put on by some politicians that comes across as very stage managed, but can be charming to women particularly, is something that's been inherited by people I don't think have dark tribe personality traits, but are following the incentive pressures in order to be successful. This is Chris Rufo's idea of a cluster B society. For those who don't know, the idea is that these dark triad personality traits have become the selection pressures for ascending competence hierarchies, now, now dominance hierarchies, because we're not bending them towards competence, again, Mm. with a patronage scheme. And so otherwise normal people are following these perverse incentives and adopting these personality traits when under a different set of incentives they wouldn't have acted this way. And so a good contrast to make is even though they're in the same sort of mould, Justin Trudeau versus Rishi Sunak. Justin Trudeau has the affect of a drama teacher and he's clearly a cynical actor with progressivism because of all the blackface that he used to do, right? But he has the very calm and compassionate way of speaking. He's clean-shaven, which is actually a, a dictum given to politicians to cul- cultivate an image that looks like a sort of clean-cut and approachable man. Uh, he's not a bad-looking guy, so women do actually vote for him on the grounds that he is quote-unquote dreamy, but he's clearly insane. Like, not not as in hearing voices insane, but as in he has quite a dark core and he is using other people for his own ends. Whereas Rishi Sunak, I don't think he would score that highly on doctorate personality traits. Mm-hmm. I think he's a very practical man, but I don't think he's malevolent. I just think that he's lurching from whichever stage-managed uh, position they put him in to the next. This is why he keeps changing his slogans and the five points and the like. But he takes on a similar affect to Justin Trudeau, but it's less smarmy and more inauthentic. But he's following that cluster B mold. So even if he's not a bad person at heart, he's still acting like bad people. Mm-hmm. He's also got a sort of sprinkling of children's presenter as well, Rishi Sunak. I don't know what it is. There's something about him that I just think the way he talks to the camera and, and people more generally, it seems like he, he's almost talking 
down to them, but not in like a condescending way, almost like a, you're talking to a child. They it's over-effective, isn't it? It is, it's yeah. over-pronounced and uses simple mm. words. And, and this is why Justin Trudeau does a similar thing, but it's, it's very patronizing because he's got drama school teacher energy. So does Rishi Sunak. But Rishi Sunak, it doesn't come across as malevolent. It just comes across as kind of cringeworthy. Mm. So in the same mould, but one is evil and one is just stupid. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I'm certainly no fan of either of them, by the way. But, you know, trying to figure out, you know, the intentions behind the smoke screen and the PR, I think is something that we should do, even though um, the temptation is to kind of paint everyone as evil, which, you know, as someone who dislikes most politicians, you know, I've got my sympathies for. I've met these people and, and, and some of them, the stupid ones, are complicit in evil. For example, I, I think anyone that after the first lockdown measures continued to push for them and wasn't directly profiting off of the vaccines, which we know some American politicians were. We don't actually know if the UK politicians were because we aren't allowed to see their tax returns or their stocks and shares. Um, we know Nadim Zahawi was still taking money from YouGov while as the vaccines minister. And YouGov kept supporting government policies upwards of 71%. So there's definitely people on the take. But I know some of these people are just dim, but it doesn't not make them accountable for the horrible decisions that they make. So again, the the distinction is worth making, but ultimately the result is always the same. Manslaughter might not be murder, but it's still a crime. Quite. Yeah, unless unless you're a black man in Nottingham. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Too true. But um, to return to um, overt and covert um, behaviours, a sort of overt thing might be the Soviet Union under Stalin. Stalin didn't really try and hide, um, you know, towards the end that there are lots of people being arrested because the scale of it was, you know, too difficult to hide. And therefore the fear created from it, everyone knew that it was going on and the, the system lent into that, right? It, it, it fostered obedience in the regime because people knew it will only take that for you to disappear. Yeah, Solzhenitsyn writes about this quite a lot. Mm -hmm. The the completely arbitrary nature for which you could be snatched from your home in the dead of night. And the interesting thing that happens there, and I think this is why politicians have moved more towards an, an underhanded model of manipulation. More and covert, yes. Quite. It's because there are greater enforcement costs involved with overt tyranny. So the amount of people that were standing there clapping for hours on end and the first person to stop to be hauled away, that's a clear example, almost a martyr around which people can galvanise and, and dissidents can gravitate towards. And the state keeps having to escalate the scale at which they're imprisoning dissidents and monitoring conversations and the like. Whereas if you do covert behavioural nudge and people fewer people are wise to the psychological warfare tactics that you're rolling out upon a population by the your enemies always playing catch up by the time that they've unpacked and put freedom of information requests in and written books and done interviews on what you've done lots of people have it baked into their psyche that this is the right thing to do because the government told me so mm -hmm. absolutely so i'm going to go through my dark triad just to, to humor you and give you an idea of um, what it's like it really is quite alarming <laughs> I'm joking. I just clicked on the link and it said that the content's not available. That's a bit worrying. Um, hang on. I'll uh, I'll pull it up. It's, it's in here somewhere. There we go. So I got uh, well below the population average um, for narcissism. I got 23%. I think it's out of a possible 100. Um, for Machiavellianism, I got 31%. And uh, for psychopathy, I got 25%, which is actually about a percent above average. And I think that that's um, largely because I'm quite 
um, impulse seeking, meaning that I, you know, not, not above hedonistic pleasure um, in the sense of I like a drink, you know, I like to have a good time. And because I answered those things, it, it punished me. I, I but it is still very, very close to the average, so I'm yeah. not too worried. I did my scores for the Why Women Love Serial Killers one, so you can go back and check that, prior contemplations for that. I believe my narcissism one was on or slightly above average, and then the other two were quite low. But I think we discussed at the time that your narcissism one, because of the questions, the way that they're framed, if you have a very inflexible self-centered moral compass not as in that i'm entitled to everything but that you hold yourself to high standards and therefore you hold just hold other people to the same standards mm -hmm. then it conflates the two and also if you're very disagreeable which on all the tests i've taken it's given me like i am the most disagreeable person out of a hundred in the room then that can also cross over traits with that category but it can be mediated by your interest in moral ideals, for mm -hmm. example. Yeah. And I mean, that makes sense because I view other people to a, a lesser standard than I judge myself. Like I hold myself to a much higher standard than I expect of other people, mainly just to keep maintain, you know, a good standard. Like I, it, if, if I still slip up, at least it's still good enough. Right. So yeah. that's the way I like to, to think about it. I'm constantly disappointed in people. <laughs> oh, that, that, that that is not a uh, part of it you know i mean i still agree with that but i suppose we may as well get onto the methods of manipulation and of course these are true of both people uh, in and outside of politics you know it's just people who engage in it um or, and of course it can also occur in things like domestic relationships you know a lot of the literature focuses on um manipulation behavior between partners like romantic partners husband and wife say and these things actually translate quite well because one of the uh, sort of re revelations from psychology is some uh, tr interpersonal traits translate to wider society and some don't and um, th these sorts of traits seem to apply as a sort of um, social strategy and therefore whether it's one person in a relationship or your view towards all of society, it seems, at least by my reading of the literature, not to matter that much. There might be some slight changes here and there, but the sort of method of manipulation and the motivation for doing so seems to remain somewhat the same. And um, it is also worth mentioning as well that Sure, these things are more common in psychopaths as in clinical psychopaths, but you don't necessarily have to be a psychopath, certainly not to a clinical level, um, to do these sorts of things. And, and even, you know, relatively menti mentally healthy people can uh, do some of these things. I've, I've been in relationships before where women out of deep insecurity will do a lot of these things just to gain certainty in, in the relationship. So it's not even that they're high in the dark triad, but it's just they're trying to control my behavior to manage their own anxieties. Mm -hmm. And so a government which is anxious about a rebellious population will start to nudge and control and confine their behavior. Uh, we're not the first person to make this comparison. I know that the concept of anarcho-tyranny uh, by Sam Francis is basically the same thing. Uh, Laura Dodsworth in her book, A State of Fear, which everyone should go read, uh, watch Dan's interview with her on the website as well, documents all of the coercive control mechanisms that the government rolled out during the COVID-19 pandemic and particularly the lockdowns. And I'm doing something on this that I'm just coining national battered wife syndrome, trademark, don't steal, uh, 
where the government is essentially treating and gaslighting the public on an institutional scale as if they were an abusive spouse. So they'll do a policy which deliberately inflicts a grievous wound on you, like smashing you in the eye and giving you a black eye, and then hand you back flowers to distract you from the fact that they hurt you in the first place. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the tactic of modern policymaking, where they'll introduce a problem that wasn't there otherwise, manufacture consent for their own policy, proposition themselves as the sole solution, and keep the population scared and dependent on them when they're at fault in the first place. No, I entirely agree. So... The first factor I wanted to talk about was isolation, which, um, as you can probably guess, is making someone feel isolated from people who might otherwise support them so they are more easy to manipulate. And my sort of go-to example for this was the fact that they, as in politicians, refer to concerns around mass migration as racist, even though some people who want to limit mass migration, you know, they're not saying we need to repatriate everyone who isn't ethnically you know, European or what have you, or British or American. It's the, the, the kinds of people who are coming in, the behaviours, they're taking, they're not even taking a racial view of it a lot of the time, they're taking a behavioural view or a sort of data-driven view of the crime statistics, which I think is perfectly reasonable. Yeah, we're not deporting Calvin Robinson anytime soon, but we are very <laughs> happy to send foreigners who are agitating on behalf of, oh, I don't know, Hamas, a prescribed mm-hmm. terrorist organization every Saturday in my home city, back to wherever the hell they came from, where Hamas doesn't rule. Thank you very much. But of course, I don't need to tell you this, but racism is very taboo in Western societies. And um, this means that people are less likely to talk about things like immigration um, because they are seen as more controversial topics. They might get in disagreements in their personal life. And therefore, by politicians saying, concern about this thing is racist or discussions in th- with this character um, these things are racist people obviously are more averse to talking about them like I've had it before where I've had conversations with people um, where I didn't really know where they stood and then it gets to the topic of immigration and you see them looking over their shoulder first and then saying actually I kind of agree with what you're saying well I've, I've had this before in TV stations of where I've been booked for a segment and the producer has either said oh yeah I agree with every word you say I just shot that you'd say that on air and I've just had to tell them I basically don't have a self-preservation technique so you're welcome I suppose I'll, I'll just be a human mind sweep without even knowing it or they've come out of the studio and said, do you really believe that? Or do you play up what you say for effect? And it, the insincerity is rampant for, because lots of dark triad style grifters will use these platforms not to nudge discourse in a healthy direction, but for personal gain. And so what politicians have done there is they have weaponized normal people's pro-social beliefs against them and increased the cost disproportionate to making an issue salient that does actually need addressing. What's happened now, fortunately or unfortunately, is that as they're scrambling to keep up with internet gatekeeping and control discourse, voices outside of the mainstream platforms have been giving voice to these issues. Uh, they'll be soon cracked down on a Labour government, I'm sure, and increasingly under Conservative government, you know, 77 Brigade monitoring our tweets and, and whatnot. But also the effects of these policies are so undeniable in reality that they can't quite layer their consensus reality over the top fast enough. They're now just exercising more and more tyranny in an overt way by saying, no, you will actually be turfed out of your homes for these asylum seekers, fighting age men, uh, and you'll fork over more and more of your tax money to support them. That's a true story, by the way. Yep, quite. Yeah, that was in Wellingborough. Uh, or, or 
you are a racist. That's just wearing off because, oh, my high street's closing down and all of these North Africans have showed up yesterday much nicer trainers than mine. How mm -hmm. strange. Thank you for watching that clip from my series Contemplations. If you want to sign up to the website for £5 a month, you can access that series, which comes out 1pm every Saturday. Thank you for watching and goodbye.